welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the trauma module from the General Surgical Curriculum, but these topics will cross into all of the other modules. The operation or topics we're going to be talking about today is topical hemostatic agents and anticoagulants. So to start with, I just wanted to go through the process of hemostasis. So hemostasis is blood clot formation at the site of a vessel injury. And essentially, it's a dynamic process that goes in four different stages. So stage one is initiation and formation of a platelet plug. Stage two is propagation of clotting through the coagulation cascade. Stage three is termination of clotting through antithrombotic control mechanisms. And stage four is removal of a clot by fibrinolysis. The coagulation cascade is a sequential activation of a series of proenzymes into their active enzymes, and the outcome of the coagulation cascade is formation of fibrin, which forms a stable clot. There's two different ways that the coagulation cascade can be started. The first is the intrinsic pathway, which is activated through exposure to endothelial collagen. And then the extrinsic pathway is through tissue factor release by endothelial cells after external damage. So just briefly to run through the clotting factors that are involved in the intrinsic pathway. So the intrinsic pathway is where endothelial collagen is exposed. And this causes contact activation of factor 7, which is transformed into factor 7A. And then 7A activates factor 11 into 11A, and this then activates factor 9 into factor 9A, and then this then goes into the common pathway. So just to review that again, it's 12 to 12A, 11 to 11A, and then 9 to 9A. And then for the extrinsic pathway, so this is where tissue factor is released by endothelial cells. Tissue factor activates 7 into 7A, and then this joins the common pathway. In terms of the common pathway, this is factor 10 getting activated into factor 10A, and then factor 10A activates prothrombin, which is factor 2, into thrombin, which is 2A, and then thrombin activates fibrinogen into fibrin. And essentially, along with this pathway, you get blood vessel vasoconstriction and contraction, and you also get platelet aggregation due to activation and adhesion with von Willebrand's factor. And so once the common pathway is activated, whether it's the intrinsic or extrinsic pathway that got you there, as I've mentioned, prothrombin goes into thrombin, fibrinogen turns into fibrin, and this forms a clot. And factor 8 is a clot stabilizer, and this forms a complex with von Willebrand's factor as well. 
I mentioned that the third and fourth stage of hemostasis is termination of clotting through antithrombotic control mechanisms and then removal of the clot by fibrinolysis because obviously you don't want clotting to go out of control and for clots to form everywhere. And so termination of clotting is um, through antithrombin 3, which degrades the activated factors. And then removal of the clot is by fibrinolysis and plasminogen is turned into plasmin, which basically degrades fibrin. So let's move on to talk about the different types of hemostatic agents. They can broadly be divided into three categories. The first category is physical or mechanical agents that activate the coagulation cascade and provide a matrix on which the clot should form. And this relies on the patient having normal clotting to form their own clot on this matrix. And examples of this include Surgicel, Fibrillar and Gel Foam. The next group are biological or active agents, and this includes flowables and fibrin sealants, and these enhance or augment the coagulation cascade at the site of bleeding, and examples of this are thrombin, T-seal, and flow seal. And then the last group are synthetic agents. Examples of this include topical tranexamic acid, bioglue, or co-seal. Another way to classify topical hemostatic agents is either as active or passive. Active hemostatic agents have biological activity and they directly participate in that coagulation cascade. So they have things such as thrombin or products that contain thrombin. And these are useful in patients who have coagulopathies because it's basically the end result of the clotting cascade that it's giving to the patient. And then passive hemostatic agents are things that provide a physical structure or matrix around which platelets and clot can form. And these are those things like gelatins, collagen-based products, and cellulose-based products. So starting with the mechanical passive hemostatic agents. As I've mentioned, these agents provide a matrix for rapid clot formation, And they can also act by swelling themselves and therefore providing a mechanical tamponade effect. They rely on the patient having their own intact clotting cascade. Specifically, the patient needs to be able to activate platelets and have fibrin production through the clotting cascade. These don't have any thrombin or other biological active compounds in them. So some benefits of these sorts of agents include that they're pretty cheap, They're ready to go and they're easy to store on the shelf. Some of the risks of these products is that they can be a nidus for infection and that some of them can swell quite a lot. So they may compress nearby nerves or vascular structures and they can embolize if placed intravascularly. Some examples include physical agents such as bone wax for bleeding from bony surfaces oxidized regenerated cellulose. So this is things like Surgicel um, or Fibrillar. These are a plant-based and quite cheap product that can be used intra-op to control bleeding from capillary, venous or very small arteriolar bleeding sites. 
And the mechanism of action is that it concentrates clotting factors by absorbing liquid locally at the site of bleeding. It provides a matrix for clot formation and it also can swell. It also has quite an acidic pH, which leads to coagulation necrosis and encourages clot formation. These products are absorbed within two to six weeks. And because of this acidic pH, they're thought to potentially have antimicrobial activity against gram-positive and gram-negative organisms. Another type of mechanical hemostatic agent is porcine gelatin or bovine collagen products. And these are prepared from purified gelatin from porcine skin or from bovine collagen. And they come in various forms such as micropolysaccharide spheres or a gelatin-based foam. I've seen gel foam used in the past um, in interventional radiology where they might be removing a drain and they gel foam the tract for hemostasis. And I've also seen surgery foam used as a little sponge like we put in for a hemorrhoidectomy. And these are porcine gelatin products. They're used intraoperatively for hemostasis from, again, low pressure capillary venous and arteriolar bleeding sites. And they essentially form a mesh for platelet aggregation and clot formation and create a tamponade effect by swelling and absorbing fluid locally at the site of bleeding. And these as well are absorbed within four to six weeks. Moving on now to the biological agents. These are essentially split up into topical thrombin, flowables, and fibrin sealants. So thrombin, as we know, is one of the terminal events in the clotting cascade, and thrombin converts fibrinogen to fibrin. So topical thrombin has a direct clotting effect on exposed blood and stimulates the coagulation cascade and the formation of fibrin to form a clot. Flowable hemostats have thrombin in them, but they also usually have gelatin, which as we just talked about is a mechanical topical hemostatic agent. And then fibrin sealants will contain thrombin, but they'll also contain fibrinogen. So it's essentially a clot in a bottle. And these can be sprayed and are useful when you want a sealant as well. So in terms of those three different groups of biological agents, the first one I said was topical thrombin. And these are active agents that can either be derived from bovine, pooled plasma or recombinant technology. I haven't seen these used as much in Australia, but different types include Gel Foam Plus and Ricothrom. The next group are flowables, and I definitely have used these in theatre before. This includes things like Flow Seal and Surgy Flow. So flowable agents combine gelatin particles as well as thrombin. So it's aim is to provide a matrix for the clot to form and then also encourage the formation of fibrin for a strong clot. The gelatin also swell, which offers a topical tamponading effect and can help it conform to irregular spaces. 
And the thrombin is obviously the terminal part of the clotting cascade, as I've said, which activates fibrinogen to fibrin. So it maintains its effectiveness even if the patient has clotting factor deficiencies or platelet dysfunction. But it does rely on the patient having their own fibrinogen to turn into fibrin. So I've mentioned Flowseal. Flowseal is a combination of bovine gelatin and human pooled plasma thrombin. And it's usually in a sort of foam matrix. And then Surgiflow is porcine gelatin with human thrombin. So this is useful in procedures where there's platelet dysfunction or patients have had heparin preoperatively, patients with active bleeding, cirrhosis or prolonged bleeding times for other reasons. And it can be useful for both capillary, venous and arteriolar bleeding as well as quite brisk bleeding. So it's used in penetrating liver and spleen injuries, for example, to help form a clot. Some of the risks of the flowables is that the swelling can compress local structures. There's a possible foreign body reaction or development of infection. There's a theoretical risk of disseminated intravascular coagulation and thrombosis and allergic reactions. And one of the downsides is that they come as a separate thrombin and gelatin um, component, and so you have to mix them up, which can take two to three minutes, which can feel like a long time when someone's bleeding. The way you use it is that you inject it to the area that you need, and then you put a wet or a moist Raytec on top and leave it there with some gentle pressure so that it can form the clot, and then you flush away any extra granules with saline irrigation. And the clot will remain in situ for six to eight weeks. Fibrin sealants are the next type of biological topical hemostatic agent. And these typically use a combination of thrombin as well as fibrinogen. And they may also contain factor eight or antifibrinolytic agent. And so these result in a cross-linked insoluble fibrin matrix and the antifibrinolytic agent will also stabilize the clot and decrease breakdown by limiting plasmin generation. The benefits of this product is that it's useful if a patient has a clotting factor depletion because obviously it's giving the two terminal parts of the clotting cascade, the um, thrombin and the fibrinogen. And it doesn't seem to have the same inflammatory reaction that the flow seal can. The clot is absorbed within 14 days by intrinsic thrombolysis. The main issue with these fibrin sealants is that they come frozen, so you have to thaw them, which can take some time. Again, that's an issue if there's bleeding. And they're packaged in separate vials. And they're also quite expensive. Some of the types of fibrin sealants include tisseal, which is human pooled plasma thrombin and fibrinogen. And this is useful for intraoperative hemostasis when there's venous oozing, organ injuries, or um, sometimes used as a bit of a glue um, to help stick tissues back together. And the other type of fibrin sealant that I've used before is a thing called taco seal. And this is a gel foam sponge, which is lined by a layer that contains both thrombin and fibrinogen. And because this comes like a little 
pad that you can put on structures. It's useful if you've stripped a capsule off the spleen or a kidney, for example, for a large area that's just oozing to help with hemostasis. So the last group in our broad types of hemostats is synthetic agents. And the main one in this group is tranexamic acid. Tranexamic acid is a synthetic derivative of lysine, which is an antifibrinolytic. So it blocks the lysine binding sites on plasminogen. So it halts plasminogen's ability to degrade fibrin or break down the clot. And it's been shown in trauma settings with the CRASH-2 trial to reduce transfusion requirements and not increase the risk of pathological clotting events. Although it's given in some other situations, it's not used as commonly and the randomized trials haven't borne out that it's useful in other types of bleeding situations apart from trauma. It can also be used topically, so on a gauze pad on a wound or a bleeding area. And then other type of synthetic agents that I haven't seen used are things like bioglue, which is a mixture of glutaraldehyde and bovine serum albumin, or co-seal, which is a synthetic polyethylene glycol polymer. So to finish off this episode, I just wanted to talk about different types of anticoagulation their mechanisms of action, and their reversal agents. So the first one to talk about is warfarin. Warfarin is a vitamin K antagonist that interferes with vitamin K's action in the liver and leads to inhibition of vitamin K-dependent clotting factors, which are 2, 7, 9, and 10. It also inhibits the formation of protein C and protein S, and its action on protein C and protein S is earlier than its action on the clotting factors. So actually in the first 24 hours, warfarin is a procoagulant. So you need to cover them, patients with clexane, if they're going to be going on to warfarin for something like a DVT, for example. In terms of monitoring, you need to monitor the INR level. INR stands for International Normalized Ratio, and the INR is calculated based on the PT or the prothrombin time, which is the time it takes for plasma to form a clot in the presence of a concentration of calcium and tissue thromboblastin. So essentially, it's testing those clotting factors that are affected by warfarin. If you're doing an elective procedure for somebody who's on warfarin, you want to withhold the warfarin for five days and check the INR on the day of surgery and making sure that it's less than 1.5. And you may consider bridging patients with clexane if they have a high risk of thrombosis. In terms of reversal, vitamin K will reverse the effects of warfarin, but it takes at least 9 to 10 hours for that effect to occur. And also if you give high doses of vitamin K, it can be very hard to re-establish patients back on their warfarin. If you need to reverse warfarin quickly, you can give prothrombin X, which is recombinant factors 2, 7, 9, and 10. And This reverses the effect of warfarin in about 15 minutes. So you want to give 50 units per kilogram intravenously. 
And you can also give fresh frozen plasma because this contains all of the clotting factors plus fibrinogen and plasma proteins. And you want to give 15 mils per kilogram. The next group of anticoagulants to mention are the direct oral anticoagulants or the DOACs. These used to be called the NOACs because they were new or novel, but now they're not new, so they're called direct oral anticoagulants. And a key thing for these medications is that most of them are excreted in the kidneys, so you need to check the patient's renal function to get an idea about how long it's going to hang around for and whether they may be super therapeutic or not. So the first one of these DOACs is dabigatran, and this is a direct thrombin inhibitor. So remember that prothrombin goes to thrombin and then thrombin activates fibrinogen into fibrin. So it's inhibiting the thrombin so that it can't activate fibrinogen into fibrin at the end of the coagulation pathway. As I've mentioned, dabigatran is renally excreted. So if you have a patient who's having elective surgery, you want to stop the dabigatran at 48 hours before surgery if they have normal renal function. And if they have impaired renal function, you may want to start at 72 to 96 hours before surgery. And patients with a creatinine clearance of less than 30 should not be on dabigatran. In terms of the blood test you should do to see if dabigatran is active, it will prolong the APTT and the thrombin time. And so you can test for that on the coagulation tests. In terms of reversal of dabigatran, there's a few different things you can do. So if the patient took it less than two hours ago, you can give activated charcoal to bind it in the gastrointestinal tract and stop it from being absorbed. Because this is renally excreted, dialysis can clear dabigatran. And there is a targeted monoclonal antibody reversal agent called idarukizumab, or also called Praxbind, which I think is easier to remember. Idarukizumab is given as 5 grams intravenously, either as a bolus or an infusion. The couple of times I've tried to get my hands on Praxbind, I've been told that the patient wasn't unwell enough or bleeding enough to be given Praxbind. Apparently, it's very expensive. So if you don't need it, then I wouldn't recommend just throwing it around. And then the other two types of DOACs are apixaban and rivaroxaban. And these are both factor 10A inhibitors. If you remember from my explanation of the coagulation pathway earlier, the 10 and 10A coagulation factors are the first part where it's the common pathway. So both the intrinsic and extrinsic pathway meet to activate factor 10 into 10A. And then 10A activates prothrombin, so 2 into thrombin, 2A, and then thrombin activates fibrinogen into fibrin. In terms of a test to look to see if these drugs are active, for rivaroxaban, this will prolong the PT time, prothrombin time. And for apixaban, you can measure anti-10A levels. In terms of when to withhold these for elective surgery, again, it depends on the renal function. So if renal function is normal, then you can withhold 24 to 48 hours before surgery and you wait 48 if it's a high-risk surgery. And if the patient has impaired renal function, then you want to wait at least 72 hours before surgery. 
Unfortunately, there is no reversal agent for apixaban or rivaroxaban. And so usually you talk to the hematologist and they tell you to throw the book at it. So you can give prothrombinex, which is those um, activated factors or recombinant factors to 7, 9 and 10. You can also try giving fresh frozen plasma or FEBA, F-E-I-B-A is a new thing that the hematologist sometimes told me to give. FEBA stands for factor eight inhibitor bypassing activity. So it's basically a mixture of coagulation factors that convert prothrombin to thrombin in the coagulation pathway without the need for factor eight or factor nine. And so for 10A inhibitors, obviously, that's the step before activation of prothrombin to thrombin. So FEBA could potentially bypass that pathway. So the last anticoagulant I want to talk about is heparin. And heparin has its anticoagulant effect in two ways. So the first is factor 10A inhibition. And it also activates antithrombin 3, which inactivates thrombin. So it's basically a thrombin inhibitor. Heparin can be given straight up as unfractionated heparin, such as with a heparin infusion or as a prophylaxis with BD, 5,000 units given for DBT prophylaxis. And low molecular weight heparin is also called clexane, and we use this quite a lot. Um, Obviously, unfractionated heparin can be reversed with protamine sulfate. So one milligrams of protamine sulfate will reverse 100 units of heparin. And low molecular weight heparin is renally cleared, so you have to dose adjust, obviously, in patients with renal failure, and it'll take longer to clear in patients with renal failure. And you can measure the anti-factor 10A levels for heparin. And reversal, again, is protamine sulfate, but it'll only reverse about 60% of low molecular weight heparin, unlike 100% of unfractionated heparin. You can also give cryoprecipitate, which are all of those factors I've talked about. You can also give FIBA or FFP if somebody is therapeutically anticoagulated with low molecular weight heparin and you need to reverse that quickly. And that completes this recap on topical hemostatic agents and anticoagulants. I hope you learned something. I always forget the smaller details for this, so it'd be nice to have it recorded to listen back to before the exam. Once again, please leave me a review if you're enjoying the podcast. It really makes my day and keeps me motivated to keep recording when I read them. And subscribe and rate the podcast because it makes it easier for others to find. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, Send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! <laughs>